Well, I think maybe we'll start. Um, we're studying the book of Genesis, and we're going to be in chapter 15 this morning. And it is still morning, so I can say that. Um, let's review uh, where we are in the book of Genesis. Uh, I'm not going to go back to chapter 1. But chapter 12 is an important turning point in the book of Genesis because that's when the character of Abraham comes on the scene. Abram, as he's called there, his name has not yet changed. And Abram is a man who lives in Mesopotamia, who lives in called Ur, that city. But anyway, God calls him, and God calls him out of that area, and he obeys. And God makes threefold promise to him. And I ask you to remember that threefold promise until Jesus comes back. What was that threefold promise? Tell him, Richard. Blessing, <laughs> land, and seed. And seed. You and got seed, it. Yeah. Yep, you got it. Wow. He, he promised him land. And here in this passage, we're finished with it, chapter 15, he's going to define the boundaries of that promise. Seed, meaning his descendants. He said they would be as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. And then blessing. It's a little more, uh, not difficult, but we have to keep our focus on that. That is the blessing of salvation, which uh, is unfolded throughout the rest of Scripture. In chapter um, 13 and 14, Abram is doing a series of things. He uh, goes down to Egypt because of famine and misrepresents things, telling the Pharaoh that Sarah, his wife, is actually not his wife, but his sister. And uh, that duplicity leads to uh, him being thrown out of Egypt. But he leaves Egypt a wealthier man. Chapter 14, his nephew Lot is captured by a group of kings from the east and taken all the way up to the north, and Abram rescues him. And chapter 15 is where we are now, picks up on the events that follow that. Abram is still questioning, are you going to bless me? Are you going to fulfill, this is Abram speaking to God, fulfill the promises you've made? Yep. Before you get in for the, the, the gains that, that Abram made, uh, one of the versions that I just was glancing through implied that, that uh, when he when they entered Egypt, uh, he actually sold Sarah, Sarai to the, the Pharaoh and they gave him a lot of stuff, animals and wealth uh, in, in that exchange. In other words, when you say, uh, I, I know what you're talking about, but sell as a, like a slave type of, of transaction? Yeah, sure. Well, there, there's, for, for, for them getting Sarai, then he got wealth. And I, I don't know how you want to quantify that or, yeah. or, or define that, but, but <clears throat> I, I just, just it, an aside is how he picked up all of his, yeah. his wealth. Well, part of that, I think, was also the for the pharaoh um, to let him go, right. uh, in effect, throwing him out of the land. He threw yeah. him out with that promise so that he would not be judged. Yeah, made sure he'd be taking, far enough away so he wouldn't yeah, come back. Yeah, so that he would not be, be judged. Yeah. Uh, because what he had done, in, and Sarah, of course, went with him. He, he did, she did not stay in Egypt. <clears throat> it's one of those providential things that God, in spite of his duplicity, still blesses him, which right. is really quite amazing. <laughs> So in chapter 15, um, we started this last time, but we didn't get it quite finished. Chapter 15 is a very, very important chapter because here is where God seals this covenant promise. And he seals it by performing, which for you and me today is bizarre. It's a bizarre, it's, it's impossible that can even make any comparison to anything we have today. But in the ancient world, when two businessmen or two individuals made a covenant, made an agreement with one another, they didn't bring in a group of attorneys who drew up a big, thick document, and they signed it and witnessed it and had it notarized. What they did is they gathered a series of animals, and the types of animals they would choose depended on their wealth and so on. But nonetheless, and they would this is where it gets really, really, really strange, they would cut the animals in half and lay them side by side, and then they would take their hands together and walk between these animals. 
That is called cutting a covenant. And that is exactly what happens in this passage. But as you will see before we're done with the chapter, Abram does not walk between the animals. God does. And what that indicates to us is that God is sealing the covenant. And the conclusion of chapter 15 is that this is an unconditional, unilateral covenant. Does that make sense? Unconditional, unilateral. It is not binding on Abram. It is not conditioned on Abram's obedience. It is not conditioned on Abram doing anything. God is saying, I will keep the promise that I've made to you. And so that's kind of where we left off last time. I want to make sure, because if you don't get this ancient practice, which is really very strange for us today, you don't understand what's happening in this passage. So are you with me? All right, four of you or the rest of you are playing living statues. So let's look at verse 7. I am, here's where where God begins to speak. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. That's just a reminder of the covenant promise. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? That's a good question. It's a natural question. It isn't that Abram is doubting God. He's just saying, Lord, I alone, I'm going to possess all this land? God says, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and at each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Okay, now, what I had just summarized, Abram now does. Verse 7, verse 12, excuse me. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on them, on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, that may sound, verse 12 through 16, that may sound a little foreign to you. You maybe aren't quite getting what God is saying here. God is laying out a very very important timeline of how God's going to fulfill this promise. So I'm going to I'm going to try to draw this in the board simply to make sure that you understand wheels are locked. I think we'll make it work. All right, here's here's God in Genesis chapter 15 reviewing and reiterating the promise. What promise? land. The focus of chapter 15 is not on being a blessing. The focus of chapter 15 is not the seed. The focus is on the land promise. Because Abram said, how do I know you're going to do this, God? So he cuts the covenant, and God reviews for Abraham how this is going to occur. So here, I'm going to give you the dates. Here we are about 2000 B.C., Okay, he says, your, your descendants, he calls them sojourners, your descendants are going to sojourn in a land that is not theirs. What land is that? Egypt. Egypt. So he's saying, your sojourners are going to be in Egypt. <clears throat> and he doesn't explain, God doesn't explain how they're going to get there, why they go there. He just says they're going to be in Egypt. How long are they going to be there? 400 years. <clears throat> Now, this is new information. It's new prophetic information. It's a new declaration of how God's going to fulfill this promise to Abraham. At the end of those 400 years, then they are going to go into the land. What land? The land of Canaan. So, Abram, I am telling you, I'm going to make you this promise. And it's about 2000 B.C., so about 1500 B.C., 
I'm going to start to bring them out. And exactly the exact period is 1446 BC, and by 1399 BC, the Jews are going to possess Canaan. Now, I'm, I'm just giving you the dates, that isn't important, but this is historical, we can document this, we know exactly how this occurred, but God is just saying something here that's really amazing. In other words, as he said at the end of the section I just read, Abram, you're going to join your fathers, you're going to die, you're not going to see this, you're not going to see this fulfilled. But I'm telling you, this is what I'm going to do. And then God adds something. Did you see that? That last verse in the section I read. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What a strange statement. Who are the Amorites? One of the it's, one of the, it's one of the tribes of the Canaanites. And Amorites is often used as kind of a general term for all the Canaanites. So what's God saying? They're wicked, but in 400 years, they're going to be even more wicked. And when you study the book of Joshua, which is the history of the conquest, when the Israelites conquer Canaan, what does it keep saying to us? That the Israelites are the instrument God uses to judge the Canaanites. So why is it taking 400 years? Well, the iniquity... The deterioration of Canaanite civilization is just going to get worse and worse and worse. So in 400 years, I'm going to use you, the Israelites, the descendants of Abram, to judge the Canaanites, and that's how I'm going to give them the land. Do you understand? Does that make sense? So this is one of those, honestly, this is, this is amazing. This is an amazing affirmation of the sovereignty of God in history. So in terms of the Israelites getting the land of Canaan, which God promised to Abraham hundreds of years earlier, there's also something else being accomplished. The justice of God is being validated because God always deals justly with iniquity. And so he's not going to do it in 2000 BC. He's going to wait over 400 years, then he's going to do it. So that everyone will know that God is just, that God is righteous in two ways. He fulfills his promise, but he also holds people accountable for their sinful actions. Uh, isn't, that, isn't that amazing? That is the kind of God we serve. And so what you see in this very short paragraph, which I just read, is God laying out for Abram? Because Abram asked the question, how am I going to possess this land? Well, Abram, you actually personally are not going to possess it. Your descendants will possess it. You're going to die. You're going to go to your fathers. You're going to live a good old life. It's going to be a rich life, but you're not going to see this happen. But I'm telling you, in 400 years, I'm going to do it. Well, God, why are you waiting 400 years? Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So when that's complete, then I'm going to use your descendants to judge them, as I fulfill the promise I'm making to you. Our like God is a God up? who's in control of things. Would is he, he kind of like giving the Amorites uh, enough rope to hang him? Kind of like I probably wouldn't put it that way, but in a, in a sense, yes. So that when God does judge the Amorites, the Canaanites, it will be understood as a just action on his part. You could also say, Woody, which I think is, uh, this is another thing that you see as you further study the Old Testament. God gives the Canaanites multiple opportunities to respond. And of course they reject any, any kind of turning to him. <clears throat> so now I, I hope I added a little bit because I, I wanted to, to put this little theological twist in here. That this is just another, this, this meaning that the paragraph we just read is another affirmation of what the Bible declares over and over and over again. God is sovereign. God is in control. And God accomplishes his purposes, and he uses all kinds of instruments to accomplish his purposes. <clears throat> Does that make sense? Are you with me? That is a major, major theological conclusion to draw from this. Let me tell you a story um, that... It doesn't relate to this directly at all, but it fits with the conclusion we're to draw from this. 
Abraham Lincoln is president of the United States during the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln is confounded theologically with what's going on. And he cannot figure it out, in a sense. I mean, he knows that it is wrong for the South to try to secede from the Union, that slavery is a moral evil, but he's trying to, he, he struggles with it because he says the South is reading the same Bible as the North. The South is praying to the same God as the North. The South is calling national days of fasting and thanksgiving as the North is calling national days of, and days of thanksgiving after major victories. The South is saying that we can justify our entire way of life based on, on, on Scripture, and the North is saying we can justify our desire to abolish slavery based on Scripture. And so he is saying, which one is right? And he reaches this conclusion. When he died, they found a little piece of paper about six by six inches by six inches, lined paper, and he wrote out a series of statements as Lincoln is trying to reflect on what is going on. And he reached his conclusion. Neither side is righteous in this conflict. Neither side, God is not taking sides in this. We, and this is, the, this is what he says, this is, a, this is a quote, we are the mere instruments God is using to accomplish his purposes. And Lincoln goes on, I've concluded that one of the purposes is to eradicate slavery from this country. And if it takes another, he said this in the second inaugural address, if it takes another 200 years for God to do that, we must understand that this is what God is doing. God's not choosing sides. God is using us as an instrument to do away with a moral evil. I don't know about you, but I wish we had leaders like that today. Amen. Who seriously reflected on what is happening and lead people, not just to get elected, but lead people in a right, moral, ethical path to follow. We don't, we haven't had leaders like that for a while, but that's all I'm going to say about that as far as Gump said 21 years ago. <clears throat> All right, you ready to move on? Yeah. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking pot and a flaming torch passed through these pieces. This is what Abram saw. This is what he saw. On that day, the Lord, and notice, please, the name for God there is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's Yahweh, the self-sufficient, self-existent one of the universe made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I will give this land. Now let me stop there for a minute. I will do with the boundaries in a minute. But it's, it's reiterating this, what Abram sees is followed up by verse, eight, uh, verse, 16, uh, verse 18. Excuse me. That this is Yahweh making this covenant. It does not say Abram and Yahweh make this covenant. It says Yahweh makes this covenant. So he is walking between the animals that, that are, are slain in two, cut in two. He is the one who is cutting, this is the language of the ancient world, cutting this covenant. It's binding on him. All covenants, we have, just, we have dozens of examples of these that have been found in archaeological digs. Dozens of these kinds of covenants that were made. But it was always two people, or two nations, or two groups, or two tribes, or two clans that are walking between, you know, <clears throat> only God walks between the animals. It is binding on him. And it reiterates, <clears throat> it reiterates for Abram that God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He will keep his promise. And this is also very, very important because remember, the book of Genesis is the first of the five books that are called Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books. These are, the, these are the linchpin books for Israel. And so they would read this, and the Levites would read it, their leaders would read it, and say, okay, we're going to be in Egypt for over 400 years. Then God's going to get us out. And that's exactly what he did. So, I mean, it's just, it, it, for me, and I hope this is the same for you, this reaffirms our confidence that, one, God keeps his promises, and, two, God's in control of things. 
I don't know about you, but some days I wake up and say, now, Lord, are you sure you're in control here? You know, <laughs> some things are happening. It's just don't, are they sneaking up on your blind side here, kind of catching you off guard? But that's just not an acceptable conclusion to reach. And this is one of those verses that, excuse me, passages that really affirms that. <clears throat> now, before we deal with the border issue, and I'll, I'll invite you to take your map out in a minute, are, are there any questions about the cutting of the covenant or what God has promised or more specifically what God is laying out and tying this into how he's going to deal with the Amorite? All right, so let's have a quiz. Take out a half a sheet. No, I never do that. Well, then let's deal with the boundaries. <clears throat> We're in verse end of verse 18. Here's the first time God is specific now. I'm going to give you your descendants land, your offspring I'll give land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, um, in a way, if you can take the map that has the age of the patriarchs, that's a little more uh, easy to use because the Euphrates River is not as clear on the other one I gave you. But let's, let's, this is what I'm talking about. The one at the age of, if you have that map that I gave you a couple weeks ago. Okay, now here's the Euphrates River, right? Did everybody see that? Does he have a map? That's the Euphrates River, okay? This is the border of what today would be Iraq, but this is the border of Mesopotamia. This is the border of the Assyrian Empire. So God is saying, Abram, your offspring, the land I'm promising them, is from the Euphrates River in the north. So I'm putting my index finger, it's a little hard for me to do, I'll do it this way. I'm putting my index finger over the Euphrates River, okay, to the river of Egypt. Now, this is, this is not as easy to discern because most of the time when you say the river of Egypt, what river do you think of? The Nile. If that's the case, then this is from the Euphrates River to the Nile River, which in terms of 2016, that's really a controversial set of boundaries, <laughs> because that's from Iraq to the center of Egypt. So, I mean, there, there are some expositors who say that it really is the eastern boundary of the Nile River. There is another possibility, and here you have to go to your other map, because unfortunately it isn't on this one. But if you look at this map, there is a small river. It is called, and you really have to, it's very, very hard to see, but it's called the Wadi El Arish. It's right here. Here's the Nile. Here's Gaza. It's right here. And there is a river. It is not by any stretch a major river. It goes like this. It goes across. Today, the boundary between Egypt and the nation state of Israel is that river. When Israel and Egypt, I don't know if you know some of the modern history, but when Egypt and Israel fought a war in 1967, Israel won that war, and they took the entire Sinai Peninsula. They were right over to the border of Egypt. In, in 1976, Israel and Egypt negotiated a peace treaty, and they decided on an international boundary, and this is the international boundary. So the recognized international boundary between the nation state of Israel today and the nation state of Egypt today is that river. So, I mean, it's just... Uh, it's, it would be fun to think it's the Nile, but it might just be this. The one thing we know is that God knows which one it is, and he will fulfill that promise. Now, here's the question that is important to ask. Has, or let's make it plural, have the Israelites ever been able to fulfill this promised boundary? Almost during the empire of David and his son Solomon. They, David ruled everything from the Euphrates River. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt about that, because under King David and his son Solomon, the nation of Israel, the United Kingdom of Israel, was a major power in the eastern Mediterranean, rivaling Egypt and, and Mesopotamia. But then, as you know, when Solomon died, you know what happened to the kingdom, it split and so on. And it did almost go down to the edge of the Nile River, not quite. So under a David and Solomon, the kingdom of Israel almost had the exact boundaries 
that God had promised Abraham in this particular passage of Scripture. So it's, it's just, it's really something. So the modern nation state of Israel is not anywhere near the boundaries of what God's promised Abraham here. And that's one of the questions. Will God ever fulfill this promise? It's unilateral. It's unconditional. Depending on how you look at end times teaching, when the Lord returns and sets up his kingdom and fulfills all of his covenant promises to the Jewish people, some would argue that he will, in effect, do just that, fulfill this conditional, unconditional covenant promise of the boundaries of his kingdom. So, chapter 15, all you see in the next verse, verse uh, 19, is just a list of all the Canaanite tribes. And, so, and you always remember Canaanites, if, if the tribe ends in ite, it's a Canaanite tribe. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, I mean, they're all, they're all the various Canaanites. They're all the descendants of Canaan, the son of Ham. It takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 10. All right. You with me? Very, very important chapters theologically. But your silence means understanding. Very good. Let's look to chapter 16. Chapter 16 has a major theme. The results of not trusting God's promise. The results of not <coughs> trusting God's promise. What had God promised Abram? He promised him family. He promised him a covenant nation. Genesis 16, does Abram have a son yet? No, he does not have a son. It's been 11 years, 10 years really almost, since God made the promise. And 10 years is a long time. 10 years is a long time to me. At 69 years old, 10 years is really a long time. When I was 20, 10 years didn't seem that long. But I mean, 10 years is a long time. And God still hasn't fulfilled the promise. God said, Abram, I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. I'm going to give you land. He just reaffirmed the land promise. Now, Abram's, you know, he's he's scratching his head. You know, I'm getting older, and Sarai, she's getting older. And so the verse 1 says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. It's been 10 years. So Sarai comes up with an idea. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Now that's very important that she's identified as a female Egyptian servant. This is no doubt someone that had joined her when they were down in Egypt, which we studied in chapter 13. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord, notice the language, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Did she know the promise God made to Abram? Of course she did. Did she believe the promise God made to Abram, her husband? Probably not. Where is that, and how is that worded? That promise. In, in, uh, in, uh, now, which promise? The one that, that, Ab- that Abram's the promise of seed. Okay, uh, b- back in, it's been repeated a couple of times, but Jack in chapter 12. But didn't he say with your wife? Yeah, oh, well, yes. I mean, it would be through Sarah, absolutely. But he said it. Yes. I think. Yes, he? exactly. And so Sarah doesn't trust, or she thinks, well, Maybe I misunderstood. Maybe Abram didn't quite get it. Maybe it wasn't translated really well. I'm making this up. But I, so, but I want you to notice something. Behold, now Yahweh has prevented me from bearing children. What is Sarai doing? She's blaming God. Yeah, I mean, this is, it, it's very, it's, it's this is language again. This is the language of doubt. This is the language of not trusting. This is the language of blaming. This is the language of victimization. This is the language, I don't 
really believe God will do what he said. Go into my servant. I'm continuing. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm continuing verse 2. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, you would think that's kind of crazy, but this was a very common practice in the ancient world. This, this was not an unusual, I'm, it's not saying that provingly, but this was a common practice. And so she says, look, I'm barren. I'm not going to have any kids. We didn't quite get what God was saying. I think what he really means is you take Hagar and that's how the covenant son will be born. That's as what he just said. That is not what God said. What is even more amazing is the end of verse two, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, as we just were mentioning, this should echo back to Genesis 3. Instead of Adam challenging Eve, should Abram have challenged Sarah here? Yes. Now, please say yes. Yeah, yes. I mean, he yes. should have. He said, no, Sarah, God said through you and me, not Hagar. She's an Egyptian servant. No, but he doesn't do that. So again, you, you see this passive, he trusts, he believes, He's righteous, Genesis 15, 6. But as with all believers, you can stumble. Your doubt can become so significant that you stumble instead of trust. And men, the consequences of Abram's stumbling here are monumental. The Arab-Israeli conflict is born in Genesis 16. If there would have been no Genesis 16, there would be no Arab-Israeli conflict. But you see, verse 13, uh, verse 3, I mean. <clears throat> so after, after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, that's a very important piece of information. It had been 10 years since God made the promise. It had been 10 years since he moved from Or into Canaan. Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Please notice that. This is polygamy. Abram, well, Sarai's doing it, but Abram accepts so. Hagar is no longer a servant. Hagar is one of his wives. Now, in your mind right now is a question percolating up. It's starting to be formed, and you're about to utter it. And what is that question? Is that where those people in Utah got that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's not the question. I yeah, <laughs> Actually, I started, yeah I I started there is. Yeah. <laughs> the Joseph is, Smith, the founder of the Mormons, did say polygamy was in the Old Testament. God approves of polygamy. We should practice polygamy. That's not good thinking, though. Because in Genesis 2, when we studied that many, many weeks ago, God makes it very clear. Marriage is to be monogamous. It is to be heterosexual. It's to be permanent. And so what you have here is the practice of polygamy. Now listen. Can you think of any example in the Old Testament where a polygamous, bigamous or polygamous marriage was positive? There is no positive. There is no positive. Every time you have a bigamous or polygamous uh, uh, relationship defined, you have disaster. You have dysfunction. And the best, the best example to think about is Jacob. Jacob had two wives and two servants. He had kids, so all four of those women. And a number of years ago, Peggy, was, she reads through the Bible every year, I came home in January one night, and she said, you know, I just finished reading about Jacob. That's the most dysfunctional family in the Bible. And it is. It was horrible. It's a horrible family situation. J Jacob was a terrible father. I mean, it was just infighting and scrapping and sibling rivalry and rivalry between the wives, and it was just awful. God does not approve by any stretch of bigamous or polygamous relationships. 
but in that matrix of how the free will of the human and the sovereignty of God, that railroad tracks, which we looked at many times in our class, God permitted this, and the results are disastrous. This is a disastrous chapter because Abram, and it's really amazing, Abram listened to Sarah. Okay, maybe you're right. Maybe that's how God's going to do it. But now he's her wife, or she is his wife, excuse me. Verse 4, and he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So now you have Hagar looking down on Sarai. Why? I have a child. You don't. I'm having a baby. You can't. That's exactly what's going on. The tension, the rivalry, the jealousy, the arrogance that goes with a bigamous or polygamous relationship. I've got the inside track now, Sarai. I'm Abram's favorite. I'm pregnant. You're not. That's exactly what's going on here. And Sarai, verse 5, said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. This is really a harmonious relationship, isn't it? It's unbelievable tension. It starts with she's childless, verse 1. This is hurtful. This, and any of you, my wife and I struggled for, with infertility. We are not able to have our own children. But God gave us the two brightest, best-looking, most talented, gifted children that he's ever created. <laughs> They're really neat kids, and when we're done, I'll show you pictures of them, and you'll be convinced that I'm right. No, I'm just, huh? What about the grandkids? Yeah, well, I have one, and he is he is really a cool little guy. I've got a lot, I have 972 pictures of him. <laughs> but anyway, it, it, infertility is a real issue. But instead of trusting what God had promised, Sarai takes things into her own hands. Abram agrees with it, and this is the consequence. She is scapegoating. She's blaming, and whom is she blaming? Abram. <laughs> May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw she conceived, she looked at me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. I'm obviously in the right here, Abram. Verse 6, But Abram said to Sarai, this is the solution that he offers. Behold, your servant is in your power. What's just happened? He no longer regards Hagar as his wife. Back, it reverts back to the previous relationship. She's now your servant, Sarai. Do with her as you please. I'm staying out of it. A real mature example of leadership, isn't it? Real mature example of someone who's a godly, righteous head of his home, helping to resolve the disputes that always arise in a home. No. You take care of it. She's your servant. Do with her what you want. I'm not going to have to do with it. And so Sarah, Sarah, I dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. What does that mean? Sarah, I threw her out of the house. <laughs> and so now... The issue is Abram's not going to take care of her. Sarai doesn't want her around. Who's going to have to take care of her? God's going to have to take care of her. <clears throat> All right, now, any questions on these first six verses? It's going to be 12.30 already. <clears throat> All right, let's move into verse 7. Very, very important phrase. The angel of the Lord found her, and the her is Hagar, she'd been thrown out of the house, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Now, if you look at the map that has Abram and Canaan, you can see, if you, if you had found where that little wadi is, which is the river we talked about earlier, you'll see in bold letters the wilderness of Shur, and then you'll see a little box, Hagar represents... Hagar receives the news that she will bear a son, Ishmael. So 
They're up here in the Negev, and she has been thrown out. Where is she heading? What direction is she heading? She's heading back to Egypt, which is her home. Remember, we learned in verse 1, she's an Egyptian servant. So Hagar's doing what naturally she would do. She's headed back home. And Shur is just the name of this wilderness between Canaan and Egypt. And it's in the middle of that that the angel of the Lord finds her. Now, who's the angel of the Lord? Gabriel? No. The angel of the Lord is God. All through the Old Testament, you see this over and over again, the angel of the Lord. And multiple, if you look at the beginning of the book of Joshua, the angel of the Lord shows up to Joshua, tells him how he's to take Jericho, and he bows down and worships him. Not just an angel, because the angels reject worship. So this, now I'm going to really impress you here, but it's one of those words, if you're interested in theology, this is what is called a theophany. This is what's called a theophany. From the Greek word theos, phanotos, an appearance of God. So this is a this is an appearance of God, the angel of Yahweh. And so the bottom line of verse 7 and following is now Abram's not going to take care of Sarah, uh, of Hagar, and certainly Sarah isn't going to tell who is going to take care of her. God's going to take care of her. Found her by the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Boy, that's hard truth. That's a hard directive. But return the angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring that so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. What does that sound like? What does that sound like? It sounds like the Abrahamic. That sounds yeah. like the promise God made to Abram. Yeah. So from the loins of Abram is going to come another group of people, not the covenant people, but another group of people that will be also of a large number. Now that's significant. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you're pregnant, you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. Ishmael is, means God hears. El, God, Ishmael, God hears. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. So God is saying, I mean, God is taking care of Hagar, and God is promising. Your son, I want you to name him Ishmael, and I will bless you. And from Ishmael are going to come descendants that are as numerous, you can't number them. And if you know anything about Islam, Genesis 22 in Islam, Abram did not offer Isaac to God. He offered Ishmael. Ishmael is the covenant son, not Isaac. And the entire, the entire Arab, <coughs> that's the ethnic name, Arab and religious Muslim looks at Ishmael as the key covenant son of Abram, not Isaac. And they, they, this is a very, very, very important passage. And if you know anything, anything about Islamic faith, one of the five pillars of Islam is called the Hajj. You are to make, as a faithful Muslim at one time during your life, a pilgrimage to Mecca. And when you go to Mecca, what are you doing? You are reenacting the pilgrimage of Hagar. That's what you're doing. So, I mean, Hagar and Ishmael are the key people in Islam, not Sarai and Isaac. Abram is. Abram's the prophet. Abram is a key individual in Islamic faith. Very important. He's the father of the Islamic and Arab, all those people. But not through Isaac, through Ishmael. So isn't it interesting? Their unwillingness to trust God's promise produced a major problem. 
that you and I in 2016 are still living with. Well, that's probably all I need to say about that. Continuing, verse 12. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Ishmael is going to be a problem. He's going to be a man who creates lots of hostility. He's always going to be a source of tension, and he's always going to be a source of strife. Has that been an accurate prophecy? Absolutely. Absolutely. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are God of seeing, for she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well she called Bear La Aroy, and it lies between Kadesh and Berad, and it's marked there on that map. <coughs> you can see it. <coughs> if you found that little box where it says Abraham received, if you just go a little bit to the northeast, if you will, or a little bit to the right, you can see the name of that well. That is where she met God. That is where God promised her the son. Name would be Ishmael, etc. Hmm. <clears throat> Verse 15. Hagar bore Abram a son. Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. It's now 11 years since God made the covenant promise. And Abram still does not have a covenant son. But by not trusting God, he and Sarai have created a very serious problem. So if you were going to preach chapter 16, which I didn't preach, I just taught. But if I were preaching chapter 16, I would say the takeaway principle from chapter 16 is this. Trust God's word and wait for his promises. But we're not preaching. We're not trying to apply the word of God here. We just want to understand. No, I want you to apply. This is a universal principle. And it applies to you, it applies to me, as it applied to them 4,000 years ago. When God makes a promise, trust him and wait for him to fulfill the promise. The beginning of instant gratification. <laughs> I think the beginning of that is Genesis 3. <laughs> <laughs> All right, any question on chapter 16? Um, yes, yes. The remember, Arab Arab is an ethnic name, an ethnic entity, so to speak. Uh, because I'm glad you knew, it does. Not all Muslims are Arabs. As a matter of fact, Arab Muslims are a minority. The majority are not are non Arabs. Are the majority of, of the one point two three billion that are on planet Earth. But yes, Jim, they all they all would go back to to Ishmael terms of the descendants. Mm -hmm. And you have a, no, I'll just go down a bunny trail real quick, then I'll quickly come back. Um, that is still true today, not the Jewish culture anymore, because they've been very assimilated into a Western way of thinking, but the Arab culture is a very tribal, clannish culture. It still is today in 2016. Do you understand what I mean by that? The, the, the typical Arab, um, this, I, this, is gonna, this sounds negative, I don't want it to sound negative, but the, the typical way in which an Arab person thinks is they don't think nation state. They think clan or tribe. Do you understand what I mean by that? And so that's one of the reasons, and Islam really links into that. Because what happens is you have the um, the Western nations after World War I moving in and saying, okay, we're going to create nation states now. And in 1905, Winston Churchill was sitting in Cairo, Egypt, took out a map and started drawing lines. And if you've ever looked at it, it's a lot of straight lines. He took a ruler, he just drew a straight line. Mm -hmm. 
And right in the middle, right in the middle of this tribal, clannish way of living, you have these nation states. And did you ever notice that that hasn't worked very well? I mean, it really hasn't. That has not worked very well. And now, in 2016, that structure in the Middle East is breaking down. It really is. In Syria and Iraq, you don't have functioning nation states anymore. What's going on, and the same thing in Northern Africa, it's, it's really, it's, it's really, a, it's just the whole way in which they look at things being revived again. And that's why this crazy nut, Baghdadi, has founded the Islamic State, because he's saying, I'm restoring the caliphate. I don't, there are no nation states. I'm trying to restore the great caliphate, which you know, nobody seems to be going along with that idea. But it's just, it's caliphate, the caliph. You know, yeah, that, the, the last caliph was right in the early 20th century at the end of World War I. When the Allies went, because the Ottoman Empire joined Germany and Austria-Hungary in World War One, they joined the wrong side, and so when Germany and Austria-Hungary were defeated, the Austrian Ottoman Empire was dismembered. It was just dis- dis- torn apart, and that's when they created the nation states. I'm getting way, way beyond your initial question, but um, Jim, it is it is a really, really difficult issue, even in 2016 to get beyond the clannish, tribal way of thinking of things in the Middle East. So the Canaanite nations, they essentially are a nation of the people? Those Canaanite tribes have basically disappeared. They are not Arabs. They are not, they are not the descendants of Ishmael. No, not at all. And they, they, have either, they of course, many of them were actually extinguished during the, the, the conquest of Joshua. But those who, who, uh, who are not extinguished, they assimilated into other parts, uh, either intermarrying with Arabs or intermarrying with Jews. Many of them uh, become parts of the covenant nation, like Rahab and others who are Canaanites. But they, um, they assimilate. They, there are no Canaanite tribes. There are no discernible Canaanite tribes anymore in the Middle East. So from this time to Winston Churchill in 1905, they were just tribal clannish? Absolutely. Absolutely. And what, that's right. And there, there were no international boundaries, and the, it, it, it had just been a series of various groups dominating them. At first, it were the Arabs under Muhammad, and then in 1057, the Turks supplanted the Arabs. And you had the Seljuk Turkish Empire and then the Ottoman Turkish Empire, which lasted until 1919. 1919, the Ottoman Empire, again, they sided with the wrong side, was dismembered. What Baghdadi's trying to do with ISIS, he wants to restore the vision of the, uh, the caliphate, where there are no boundaries anymore. It's, I am the caliph, <laughs> the lieutenant of God. That's what he means by that. And, of course, even other Muslims are looking at him and saying, you're nuts, we're not going to follow you. But it's just, it's really a fascinating, and that's one of the things that is, I don't know how that is ever going to be transcended and solved. Maybe it won't until Christ comes back. It is, I mean, I, I, every year I would go to the Middle East. Uh, I haven't, 2014 is the last time I was there. But when you're in the Middle East, you just see that. That's why Israel's so unique. Israel is a dump democracy. Israel is a, a free market capitalist nation. It's like an oasis in the, in the midst of chaos. <laughs> I mean, it's very stable. It's just amazing, but it's the homeland for the Jewish people, created in 1948, and they are the exception in the Middle East, not the rule. It's just, it's really fascinating. Is it kind of why Afghanistan is so hard to have a government? I mean, they have been tribal Sin- forever. Yeah. If you want to understand Afghanistan, you have to understand, think tribes. Do not think nation state. Afghanistan is an artificial creation. It, it, there is no... There is no rational reason for creating Afghanistan. It's the same way with Iraq. There is no rational. Iraq is a fiction. Northern Kurds, Middle uh, Sunnis, South Shiites, and all three of those groups have hated each other for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And so Great Britain tried to say, okay, we're going to create a nation state. You guys get along. (laughs) Okay. And then you have a guy like Saddam Hussein comes along. And what is Saddam Hussein? He holds all that together with terror and power. And when Saddam Hussein was executed, what happened? 
Iraq just blew apart. Just blew apart. I mean, that's, I'm, not, I'm not advocating Saddam Hussein as a solution to this stuff. But it's just, it's the mess. It's the mess that, well, no, let's put it, it's the mindset that exists. And um, it is very, very, very difficult to impose a Western idea of nation states in this kind of a world. I mean, it really is. If you want to understand Syria, you have to start with the Assad family, which are Alawites. The Alawite is one of the clans, and they have been in power for 55 years. And they're not about to surrender, because if they surrender and give up, what will the other clans do to the Alawites? Get revenge for 55 years. I mean, if you ever watched The Godfather, and, you know, the, the Sicilian vendettas, mm-hmm. the vendetta idea is absolutely central to the Middle East. It, I mean, it's central. Your tribe attacks my tribe, my tribe will get back to you. I mean, it's just, it's really, it's really horrible. Well, chapter 17, which because of Jim's question, it's all his fault, uh, we were not able to get into. <laughs> No, it was a great question. It really was. Chapter 17, Abraham is 99 years old. So we go from 86 to 99. It's 13 years later. God institutes a covenant sign. It's circumcision. And so next week, we, we, have to, we have to investigate this very important chapter. We still don't have the covenant son born. <laughs> but God keeps inching this along. Unconditional, unilateral covenant promise. I tested your faith. You didn't do well with that test. Hagar and Ishmael. But now, Abram, we're back on track. Um, I'm going to make a covenant sign here. That's going to be circumcision. I have to explain, why does God choose circumcision? Because the Jews are not the first people to practice circumcision. Why did God choose that? And then, finally, finally, we'll see Isaac born. So if the Lord tarries and we meet again next week, we'll finally see 25 years after God made the promise. 25 years. Would you wait 25 years for God to fulfill a promise to you? That's how long he waited until Isaac was born. All right, let me pray here. And Lord, we're thankful for our time around the word of God this afternoon. Thank you for these men and for their willingness to come a number our way today. Fred is gone. I'm not sure where he is, but others I know are traveling. We just ask your blessing, watch care over them. Thank you for this reminder in chapter 16, particularly to... um, Listen to the promises that you make to us and trust that you will keep your promises. One of the lessons of, uh, of Hagar uh, and the, the tragedy of, of what Sarai and Abram did was created a kind of mess that, in a sense, we still live with today. And that's the way you've made your world. Those who trust you receive blessing. Those who sometimes stumble there can be consequences that are always unintended, but there's still grace, there's still mercy. You showed grace and mercy to Hagar. You showed grace and mercy to Ishmael. But there's still the consequences when we don't trust you. You still love us. You still care for us. You still superintend events where you keep your word despite the times when we stumble and doubt and do stupid things. You still love us. You still take us. You still pick us up. You still get us back on track, which is what you did with Abram. Lord, as Ed said, we remember um, the family that lost their their uh, little boy in, in the lake there in the uh, Waterloo area, as well as that family in Alcorn who lost their son down there in Florida. Immensely difficult things. I can hardly imagine that kind of grief, that kind of sorrow, that kind of aching. The Lord just... Um, Come alongside them right now. Second Corinthians in verse in chapter one talks, I think it's ten times the comfort of the Lord. May your comfort be real for those families today. God's surround your surround your in your presence, uh, your love, and put, wrap your arms around them, so to speak. And Lord, just strengthen them in this enormous period of loss. We also remember Richard's request here for his son Simon.
Um, he's been diagnosed with the bipolar condition, and there are some some threats apparently he's been making uh, there in the family. So we entrust that to you. Would you protect him and and the rest of the family? And Lord, just do a, a mighty work in Simon's life as well. Uh, thank you again for the time we've been together. We ask your watch care over everyone as we go our separate ways. And in all we do and all we say, might we represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. 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 See you next week. Thank you, Jim.